Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Real grateful for the chance to be with you today. Today, I want to talk to you about the Temple Lot case. Now, this case is significant for a whole host of reasons, and this is one of the really cool historical stories within Mormonism, and there's so much data here and interesting pieces of data in the conversations that people are having back and forth. So before we get started, we need to kind of set the stage. And and to do that, we have to kind of understand a little bit of the history before this case even, even is on the horizon. The founder of the LDS Church, Joseph Smith, right? He sends missionaries to Missouri in 1831 to convert Native Americans. Then he visits the state himself a few months later, and he announces by revelation... That Independence, which is the county seat of Jackson County, is going to be the, quote, center place of Zion, a future utopia, a spot for the house of the Lord, lying westward upon a lot, which is not far from the courthouse. You can look in D&C section 57, 1 through 4. At this time, Independence was the staging area for the Santa Fe Trail and otherwise this small backwater settlement. In a few years, it would become the trailhead for the Oregon Trail and the California Trail, bringing significantly more traffic and a few more permanent settlers to the area, but remaining something of a frontier outpost. In December 1831, the LDS Church Bishop Edward Partridge, second bishop of the church, purchases the land that Smith and his counselor, Sidney Rigdon, had dedicated in August in a ceremony that marked the exact spot for the temple. It was not yet clear what function this new temple might serve or even exactly what this millennium that was just ahead implied. Whether the community would establish a city of peace so Jesus could return, or if Jesus would destroy the wicked and then establish peace. The stage has been set, the land's been dedicated, the land has been purchased, and now we have this spot that has been declared by revelation where Zion is going to be, where this utopian community is going to be. The very exact spot has been dedicated. Jesus is coming back and his temple needs to be right here. In early 1848, Bishop Partridge's widow and daughters sold the 63 and a quarter acres purchased back in 31, and they deeded the land to a James Pool. In 1849, Pool's property was auctioned at a sheriff's sale, and a man by the name of John Maxwell acquired the property. 
Fast forward to 1851, two developers, John Maxwell and Samuel H. Woodson, entered into an agreement and divided the 63 acres into lots. Whether whether or not they knew it, lot number 15 contained a stone marker indicating that it was where the temple would be built. Most Latter-day Saints settled in Illinois in 1838 and 39 after their expulsion from Missouri and then after being evicted from their headquarters in the city of Nauvoo in 1846, moved west to Utah with Brigham Young. However, a significant number of Latter-day Saints remained in the Midwest and organized themselves into various churches. One group, led by a Granville Hedrick, consolidated into the Crow Creek Congregation centered in Woodford County, Illinois. Hedrick said on April 24th, 1864, that an angel had appeared to him. This angel had instructed him to prepare to return to Independence, Missouri, three years hence. Accordingly, in 1867 and 1868, Hedrick and his congregation sold their farms, moved to Independence as instructed by the angel. In addition, they began buying land for themselves. A second group of scattered saints, loosely guided by Jason W. Briggs and Zenas H. Gurley Sr., were by 18, mid-1852 being called the, quote, New Organization, unquote. And in response to requests to lead them in March 1860, the son of the prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith III, consented to take my father's place as the head of the Mormon church. He did so at the April 1860 conference of the renamed, quote, reorganization, unquote. And 12 years later, he incorporated the church in Illinois as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Initially, Joseph Smith III warned people that if they return to Missouri too soon, that they can, quote, expect that the judgments of God will come upon them, unquote. But by 1877, he had relented, telling members that if they so desired, they could move into that state in safety. In 1878, he spoke of the spiritual vision he had received of the future temple. So you have, again, pieces of the stage set. You've got these two groups who, who in their theology, realize that this land is the spot that Jesus is coming back to. This land is important. There is some, there's some credibility at stake here. That whoever has this piece of land, that, that there is some claim to owning the spot that Jesus is coming back to, and it, and it kind of validated to them that, oh, I'm the right church. Meanwhile, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church, is out in Utah. They've moved. They've headed west. And while they certainly still, you know, we, you, me, and the listeners here who are LDS, we still recognize that this this general area here, is the spot where the temple is going to be built, the spot that Jesus is coming back to. The trouble is we are so far away that there's no way for us to specifically like say, look, we're going to do something in terms of making our headquarters on this spot. And so you're left with these two other groups that are in the area and they're fighting over this land. As early as 1856, leaders of the Church of Christ and the RLDS Church 
had made overtures to each other to establish harmony. So these two groups who sense that this land is kind of crucial to their claim decide that they're going to work together to see if they can build bridges between them. In 1885, the RLDS Church suggested that a joint committee be formed to iron out their differences. Correspondences indicate that the real intent, though, of the RLDS Church was nevertheless to acquire the temple lot. Good old lot number 15. The RLDS Church in 1887 on June 11th filed a notice to quit possession. So you can see that these, this, uh, this willingness to work together, this effort to corroborate and, and work together in harmony begins to break down. The RLDS Church files this notice to quit possession, and this would have been similar to a landlord ordering a tenant to vacate. The Church of Christ, or the Hedrickites, moved quickly to solidify their ownership. Anticipating the RLDS Church's actions a few months earlier, the Church announced plans in April 1887 to design a house of worship to locate the same on the temple grounds. Within two years, they had erected a 16-foot by 25-foot edifice at the cost of $377. From the RLDS Church's point of view, this was an act of defiance. As the RLDS Church began to observe that lumber and other building materials were rapidly accumulating on the site, on June 11th, 1887, the RLDS Church served a written notice to the Church of Christ, Temple Lot, to cease and desist performing any construction on the disputed site. However, construction continued, and media reports of the day indicate that a habitable structure was in place as early as the summer of 1887, this this building we just spoke of. On September 10th, 1888, visiting elders from the Utah-based Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were welcomed and invited to lecture in the building, which apparently was completed by that time. So we've set the stage for the trial. Both sides started trying to work together, but with motives each of of trying to maintain this land or to secure this land. Now things have kind of disrupted. Both are making strong claims either by legal action or by building structures on the site that this property belongs to them. On August 6th, 1891, the RLDS Church filed suit in the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri, claiming equitable title to the Temple Lot, which was under control by the Temple Lot Church. The Temple Lot Church in this trial, argues that it has a claim on the property on basis of legal title. Now, let me explain. So, Joseph dedicates the property, they buy it, the property is eventually sold off in ways that are believed to be legal means. And eventually, the Temple Lot Group secures this piece of land. So, they have a title to the land. They own it in terms of the legal system without some kind of court case or precedent being set. The idea that they hold this title says, look, we own this land. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. But later on in the trial, they they begin to see that that position may be um, unsustainable. 
And so they eventually begin to argue that they are the rightful successor of the original church and hence have legal right to this land. But when you make that argument, you also open up the argument to the other side then to say, no, we're the legal successor of the church. The Utah-based LDS church should also be noted that they participated in the case, providing both funds and legal advice to the Hedrickites. Perhaps to bolster their legal claim to the property, a Hedrickite conference announced on Sunday, April 9th, 1893, that the construction of a long-awaited Latter-day Saint temple would begin on the disputed property. But, uh, but obviously on the advice of their attorney, that strategy, that idea, was abandoned. In March of 1894, the RLDS Church was named the rightful successor to the original Latter-day Saint Church by the judge in this case, and that as such, they were entitled to ownership of the property. The RLDS Church ends up winning the case. So in spite of the fact that this land had been sold and split up and sold over and over again, the argument being made was that it was not sold legally, that the RLDS Church was the rightful continuation of Joseph Smith's church, and hence the land still belonged to the church since it had not been sold legally, and the RLDS Church is named in the case as the winner. Cut and dry, right? The land now belongs to the RLDS Church. Wrong. The Church of Christ, the temple lot, appealed the trial and the court's decision to the United States Court of Appeals over the Eighth Circuit. There was the debate on the issue of latches, suggesting that the RLDS Church had unnecessarily delayed in asserting its rights over the property. In other words, there was ample time for the RLDS Church to assert its right of ownership. And at some point, so much time has passed, and you have not put up any fight for this land, that the court system deems it reasonable to move on and allow others to then legally purchase and own the land. And so they decided that in any case, the legal title claims of the Hedrickites were probably superior to those of the ecclesiastical claims of the RLDS Church. But rather than reverse the decision of the trial court, the appeals court dismissed the case from the courts entirely, which meant that the controversy stood as though the original case had never happened. As a result, the Hedrickites remained in possession of the temple lot by default, because they held legal title to it, and it's as if there was never any lawsuit to come forward. The RLDS Church then sought to appeal the decision to the United States Supreme Court, but that court denied the case, and hence brought the case to a close. To give some closure to the case in terms of the Hedrickites and the RLDS Church, which is now the Community of Christ, Let's offer some closure. These two groups were absolutely frustrated and angry at each other. 
the Hedrickite church was frustrated that it had, it had incurred $7,600 in legal fees. Now the court ordered that the community of Christ or RLDS church at the time reimburse the amount of 2,200, but that still left a $5,300 bill of legal fees that the Hedrickites had to pay in order to get this decision that they were right to begin with. These two groups were not happy with each other. But eventually, they do make amends. In 1970, these two groups reestablish this joint relations committee that they tried to start way back then. As a, as a note, in 1942, RLDS church president Frederick M. Smith asked church historian Samuel Burgess whether the temple might be shifted considerable from the 2.75 acre spot and still be in the confines of the 63 acres. Burgess' answer is unknown, but in 1968, RLDS church president W. Wallace Smith said that he had received revelation from God that the time had come to begin preparing to build my temple in the center place. The groundbreaking was held on April 6, 1990, and the beautiful spiral-shaped edifice was dedicated in April 1994. The church changed its name to the Community of Christ in April 2001. And so from that, you can see that the RLDS Church, which again, today is the Community of Christ, essentially has set aside this temple lot. They've lost. They've, they've moved on from that. And the debate or the, the discussion, the investigation now becomes like Joseph dedicated this very, very spot, but they secured all this land originally around this spot to be this utopian Zion. And is it okay? Do you think, do you think Joseph Smith's intention, or do you think there's any wiggle room for us to say, like, let's move away from this exact spot and still call these 63 acres the place where Zion's going to be? And as long as we have a spot of land on these 63 acres, do we indeed still have a theological claim to the land dedicated as Zion? A couple other interesting notes. Things that happened in this case that are just kind of intriguing there is this need to reestablish appropriate deeds and appropriate sales of this land. One of the things that comes forward is this deed from Oliver Cowdery. On the face, the Cowdery deed purports to transfer the title of all lands from Bishop Partridge to the children of Oliver Cowdery. John, age 7, Jane, age 3, and Joseph Smith Cowdery, age 1, for the sum of $1,000. So this deed comes forward. The Cowdery family says they have it, and they hand it over to the RLDS church. Claims to be a deed from Oliver Cowdery, sold to his children for this land. And that if that's the case, now we have this new legal precedent for who this land belongs to. It's sold for the sum of $1,000. The purported warranty deed was not dated, but an accompanying affidavit was dated 25 March 1839. In addition, it was not recorded until 7 February 1870. 
It should be noted that the Saints were evicted from Missouri under Governor Boggs' extermination order in the latter part of 1838. If the date of the attached affidavit is correct, the transfer was made under less than ideal circumstances. But here's what's interesting. As they're, as they're looking at this deed and trying to figure out how this applies to the case, they begin to suspect that the deed is not authentic. There's several flaws present in the Oliver Cowdery deed that reveal it to likely be a fraudulent document. The first flaw is that the deed was not dated, and the affidavit attached is dated the 25th of March, 1839, and was signed before Judge Elias Higby in Caldwell County, Missouri, after he ceased to be judge in that county. Second, the deed was signed by Bishop Partridge in Caldwell County when the bishop was actually in Illinois. Third, the deed purported to sell the land to Oliver Cowdery as an elder in the church, even though he had been expelled on the 11th of April, 1838, and was not considered a member at that time. And finally, the children mentioned in the deed never existed. Now, there's a possible explanation for that. Again, John age 7, Jane age 3, and Joseph Smith Cowdery age 1. So the explanation for these names being wrong is that in the emotionally charged settling following the expulsion, Bishop Partridge may have actually meant Josephine Cowdery when he wrote Joseph Smith Cowdery. Also, Oliver Cowdery did not have a son named John, but his brother Warren did. Despite the possible explanations, it must be remembered that Oliver Cowdery was a lawyer and likely would not have accepted a deed that failed to appropriately name his heirs. There were other deeds that came forth too, and these other deeds were also seen as not being useful to the case or perhaps being fraudulent. Now, as interesting as that is, it brings us to the real purpose of having this conversation today. And that is to talk about what was said in that Temple Lot case that today still has a deep relevance to Mormonism, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that issue is polygamy. So knowing that that's the issue we want to hit on today, let's talk about some of the things that were said in this case. But we want to end talking about the women who testified of their, the nature of their relationships with the prophet Joseph Smith. In this trial, there is this back and forth trying to establish polygamy. And the reason is, the reason the LDS Church gets involved is that they are trying to diminish the claim of the community of Christ, the RLDS Church. They see the RLDS Church as one of the greater threats to their claim of authority. They have the son of the prophet Joseph Smith Jr. He's taken the head of this church. And there's also this conversation in the background that this, this man, when he was a child, was blessed to be the heir. And so the LDS church gets involved because if it can establish that Joseph Smith commanded polygamy, and if polygamy was a sanctioned revelation and practice mechanism within the church, then it shows that the RLDS church didn't 
continue on the religion that Joseph Smith had started and begins to then take away from their claim to ownership, which the Hedrakites love because it gives them a claim to this land on essentially putting down or dismissing the RLDS church's claim to being the continuation of Joseph Smith Jr.'s church. So the LDS church sends its leaders and it sends these women who are purported to be the plural wives of Joseph Smith to testify in this trial. But there's a lot of almost funny games going on in this trial that LDS leaders are wanting to not say certain things, but also trying to help the Hedrakite church because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so, for instance, Lyman O. Littlefield, president of the Quorum of the Seventy in the LDS Church, he testifies. Here's the Q&A. Question. Did you, in your correspondence with Joseph Smith III, in relation to this evidence on polygamy, say that Brigham Young claimed that no man on earth ever saw that revelation until 1852, or that he had a copy of it? Answer. I do not remember that. Question, could you swear you did not write that? Answer, I cannot say. I do not remember anything about it. The correspondence speaks for itself and is still in existence, I suppose. Question, well, if it is in there, is it true? Now, I gotta stop here and just say, what the, what the lawyer is asking is, if the statement is in the document, do you stand by it? Here's his answer, I do not remember if it is in there or not. I remember nothing about it. Question. Well, if it is in there, if it is in there, is it true? Again, same question asked because he didn't answer it. He dodged it. Answer. The correspondence speaks for itself and is still in existence. Do you see? He's dodging it again. Question. If the statement is in reply that you wrote to Joseph Smith III, is it true? Answer. I guess you are familiar with it. Again, another dodge. Question. Well, yes, I guess I am just as familiar with it as you are. Just exactly. I have no doubt, but that you know right well what is in it. But if you are willing to go on record as evading the question in that way, all right. The defense witness, Littlefield, did not answer the question. And a little later in the examination, the following exchange takes place. Question. Who notified you to appear as a witness? Answer. I am willing to answer the question if I am compelled to answer it. The questioner then says, answer the question. And his answer comes forth. Wilford Woodruff, president of the church in Utah, he notified me to appear. And so what we see from this, this this attendance by the witness, he was not subpoenaed to appear. He testifies merely because another witness, Wilford Woodruff, requested his presence. And these kinds of shenanigans go on throughout the trial. Another witness, Joseph P. Noble, when asked about the names of his wives, responded, I did not say I could not tell the names of all my wives. I might tell some of them. I do not think I could tell the names of any of them. And I swear that I will not tell just for your damned nonsense. Yes, sir. I am an elder in the church, and I am swearing in court. I said it was not your damn business because your question was so nonsensical. 
I cannot tell the date I took my first plural wife because the date bothers me. It might tend to criminate me if I answered that question. Another defense witness, Mary Rachel Thompson, was constantly prompted by Joseph Fielding Smith, an LDS priesthood member. From the foregoing, we see a less than favorable perception of the veracity of the defendant's witnesses. So you can see there's these kinds of shenanigans that continue to go on. Wilford Woodruff, president of the LDS Church, he alleged in this trial that Joseph Smith Jr. taught polygamy as early as 1842. Now that seems strange, right? Knowing that Joseph approaches 12-year-old Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner in 1831 and tells her that she's going to be a future wife, a plural wife, of Joseph Smith. In 1833, Emma Smith catches Joseph and Fanny Alger in the barn and says she saw the whole transaction. And Oliver Cowdery writes his brother Warren and says that that relationship was a filthy, nasty scrape. So we have Joseph in the early 1830s initiating relationships with women outside of his marriage to Emma. And so it seems strange that Wilford Woodruff is claiming 1842 that as the earliest that Joseph Smith taught polygamy. The Times and Seasons newspaper ran an article dated 1 October 1842, and this was in response to John C. Bennett in his spiritual wifery. It says, We, the undersigned members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and residents of the city of Nauvoo, person and families, do hereby certify and declare that we know of no other rule or system of marriage than the one published from the book of Doctrine and Covenants, this would be old section 101, which was on monogamy, which provided for monogamous marriage, and we give this certificate to show that Dr. J.C. Bennett's secret wife system is a creation of his own make, and we know of no such society in this place, nor ever did. And this proclamation was signed by the Quorum of the Twelve, including, guess who? Guess who? Wilford Woodruff. And and so we have to come to grips, and again, I'm happy to have a conversation about the justification for dishonesty. I am fully on board that sometimes, under certain circumstances, lying is the right thing to do. And for anyone who disagrees with that, please email me and I will be happy to share a multitude of examples. I'm not debating the right or wrongness of this specific example, but it should be noted that Wilford Woodruff and the rest of the 12, any of them who knew about plural marriage, and Woodruff says again that they had, that Joseph had taught polygamy as early as 42, which again, the date is wrong, but still based on this uh, Times and Seasons article, Wilford Woodruff is lying. And we have to deal with that. And there should be nothing wrong with just flat out stating it, that church leaders throughout this trial are dodging questions and they are lying. When it comes to polygamy, it appears that Brigham Young revealed the revelation of polygamy to the general membership at General Conference in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1852. 
Supposedly, the revelation was given to Joseph Smith Jr. on the 12th of July, 1843. Again, this is the written revelation. Woodruff claims that it was taught as early as 1842. He's testifying in this Times and Seasons article because they attribute their signatures to it and they are, they are saying it absolutely is not part of the 1842 Nauvoo milieu. Yet polygamy is practiced as early as in terms of Joseph teaching it to members of the church as early as 1831 and certainly a number of church members and leaders become aware by 1833 through the Fanny Alger episode. You also have Lucinda Harris, the third plural wife of Joseph Smith. And the date here is fuzzy, but it's certainly assumed by most scholars to be between 1838 in 1840. And this marriage would have been understood by a few members of the church, again, coming before the Wilford Woodruff uh, testified date of 1842. When Lucinda Harris is married to Joseph, when Thomas Marsh is essentially kicked out of the church and, and essentially leaves with his wife and is dealing with this milk and strippings episode with Lucinda Harris, and we know Lucinda Harris is sealed to Joseph around that time as well. Six months prior to this milk and strippings episode to be, to be more uh, close in historical data. Now going back to how this polygamous doctrine works its way into the church, it should be noted that supposedly the revelation was given to Joseph Smith Jr. on the 12th of July, 1843, which we've already noted almost 11 months before his death. In addition, the revelation had not been brought before any quorum of the church or membership of the church for approval during Joseph Smith Jr.'s life. Its first presentation to the public occurred at the LDS conference in 1852. In this, bringing it before the conference in 1852 did not follow the law of the primitive church. Before a purported revelation may become law, it must first pass the three leadership quorums and then be presented to the general membership for the approval-disapproval of the revelation. These quorums would be the Quorum of the Twelve, the Stake High Council, and the First Presidency. Jack H. Carter, a former member of the LDS Church and a witness for the plaintiff in the Temple Lot case, stated that, quote, the manner of doing business under the leadership of Joseph Smith Jr. and that of Brigham Young were not the same. Joseph Smith never tried to take the agency from a man in regard to elections, unquote. Concerning the revelation on polygamy, John H. Carter further testified, the revelation was made to the people enforced upon them. Clearly, this was not the procedure used in the primitive church. And and you also have to deal with this idea that there's section 101 in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, which which in it is a section that essentially holds that the church practices monogamy and that is the doctrine of the church. And you have this section which says, keeping yourselves holy for each other and from all others during your lives. The trouble with section old section 101, not there anymore, you'll have to go online and find it, Shouldn't be too hard to do that, though. The one trouble we have here, and this is something I've learned in the last year, and I should note here, just to stop and take a breather, 
I should note here, like I've really learned more about Mormonism in the last two years than I did the five years before that. And I've learned more in the last, you know, seven years than I learned in the ten years before that. Like I, I feel like the more I read and the more I dig and the more I try to understand context and, and open doors into these issues of our past, that I'm continually learning. And I would simply say here, for the, for the member of the church who's in the early stages of discovering that the dominant narrative is not true, as Richard Bushman stated, that I would, I would caution you to be patient and to take this slow. And I'm not saying like whatever your conclusion is today, you'll have a different conclusion, but I will say that your understanding and the context in which you see these issues will change dramatically. And that there is value in slowing down and working for some time to try and make sense of all of this. That would be, that would be one thing I would throw out. So it should be noted, let's go back to the section 101, it should be noted that it is believed by many of the scholars within Mormonism that Oliver Cowdery, out of his frustration with what happened with Fanny Elgar, actually writes section 101 himself while Joseph is not in the area. And we do have to somewhat deal with how does it get published in the DNC? Why does it sit there so long? We certainly need to wrestle with that. But I at least want to say on the faithful side of this, that there is a possibility that old section 101 was never intended by Joseph Smith to be in our canonized scripture and was not written or or suggested to be written by him. And I will leave that for all of you to go off and to study further to see what the truth of that is in your own mind. But I simply leave it here in offering some disclosure in this conversation. Despite there having been no proper vote on the polygamous revelation, the LDS Church deletes section 101 from the Doctrine and Covenants in 1876. Again, I don't know why it sits in there so long, if it was written by Cowdery in response to the early relationships of Joseph Smith with Fanny Elgar and others. Despite there having been no proper vote, again, they delete it. 1876 is when they do that. And they insert at that point the new section 132 on polygamy. When questioned about this event, Wilford Woodruff, president of the LDS Church, states, quote, I do not know why it was done. It was done by the authority of whoever presided over the church, and I suppose that Brigham Young was the president then. Unquote. There appears to have been other doctrines, blood atonement, Adam God, avenging oaths, that were added and or changed to the doctrine of the original church by the LDS faction. However, none carried more emotional impact than did the issue of polygamy within the church. And so with that said, let's finish with these women. These are the women who come in this temple lot case and they testify of their relationships. Because of claims by the reorganized Latter-day Saints that Joseph Smith was not really married polygamously in the full sense of the term, Utah Mormons affirmed repeatedly 
that Joseph had physical sexual relations with his plural wives, despite the Victorian conventions in 19th century American religion, which otherwise would have prevented mention of sexual relations in marriage. That's from Todd Compton in Sacred Loneliness, a book I recommend that every member of the church pick up and read through to understand the stress, anxiety, the heart of and soul of these women who were who were involved in the plural marriage early on in the church with Joseph Smith. First, number one, faithful Mormon Melissa Lott testified that she had been Joseph's wife, quote, in the very deed, unquote. In a court affidavit, faithful Mormon Joseph Noble wrote that Joseph Smith told him he had spent the night with Louisa Beeman. That's Temple Lot case. I believe it's page 427. Number three, Emily D. Partridge. She said that she, quote, roomed, unquote, with Joseph Smith the night following her marriage to him, and that she had, quote, carnal intercourse, unquote, with him. That's Temple Lot case, complete transcript, and I think you can uh, find that on page 364, 367, and 384. Number four, Joseph Smith's personal secretary records that on May 22nd, 1843, that Smith's first wife, Emma, found Joseph and Eliza Partridge secluded in an upstairs bedroom at the Smith home. Emma was devastated. This comes from the William Clayton Journal, entry for the 23rd of May. Number five, Smith's secretary, William Clayton, also recorded a visit to young Elmera Johnson on May 16, 1843. Quote, President Joseph and I went to B.F. Johnson's to sleep, unquote. Johnson himself later noted that on this visit, Smith stayed with Elmera, quote, as a man and wife, unquote, and, quote, occupied the same room and bed with my sister that the previous month he had occupied with the daughter of the late Bishop Partridge as his wife, unquote. Elmira Johnson also confirmed her secret marriage to Joseph Smith, quote, I lived with the prophet Joseph as his wife, and he visited me at the home of my brother Benjamin F., unquote. Number six, faithful Mormon and stake president Angus Cannon told Joseph Smith's son, quote, Brother Heber C. Kimball, I am informed, asked Eliza R. Snow the question if she was not a virgin, although married to Joseph Smith, and afterwards to Brigham Young, when she replied in a private gathering, quote, I thought you knew Joseph Smith better than that, unquote. That's an interesting statement. Number eight, Sylvia Sessions thought that she had a daughter by the prophet Joseph Smith. And State President Angus Cannon, in terms of her, testified, quote, I will now refer you to one case where it was said by the girl's grandmother that your father, Joseph Smith, has a daughter born of a plural wife. The girl's grandmother was Mother Sessions. She was the granddaughter of Mother Sessions. That girl, I believe, is living today in Bountiful, north of this city. I heard President Young, a short time before his death, refer to the report. 
The woman is now said to have a family of children, and I think she is still living. Unquote. Number nine, faithful Mormon Prescindia D. Huntington, who was uh, Buell's wife and simultaneously a plural wife of the prophet Joseph Smith, said that she did not know whether her husband or the prophet was the father of her son Oliver. Number 10, Sarah Ann Whitney. Quote, the only thing to be careful of is to find out when Emma comes, then you cannot be safe. But when she is not here, there is the most perfect safety. Only be careful to escape observation as much as possible. I know it is a heroic undertaking, but so much the greater friendship and the more joy when I see you. I will tell you all my plans. I cannot write them on paper. Burn this letter as soon as you read it. Keep all locked up in your breast. My life depends on it. I close my letter. I think Emma won't come tonight. If she don't, don't fail to come tonight. I subscribe myself your most obedient and affectionate companion and friend, Joseph Smith. I will note, again, I'm getting this off of a, a, a spot and I want to, I want to again, in full disclosure, recognize that the apologetic argument here, and I think there's some weight to the apologetic argument, is that this letter is not necessarily written directly to Sarah Ann Whitney, but to her family as a whole. And if that's the case, it is not appropriate to discern from this instance of there being uh, intimacy between Joseph and Sarah Ann Whitney. What I would suggest, though, is that you see the context, if we just take... Uh, a step back from the situation and look at the multiple women here and what they're saying and what the other witnesses are testifying of, then I at least want to throw this in as a possibility and recognize there's plenty of other evidence indicating that these relationships, at least in a number of them, is sexual. Number 11, Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner. Again, she's the 12-year-old. Now, we tell the story in church history where she's putting the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Commandments, as the building is being destroyed and the papers are blowing all over. She's the girl with her friend who runs out into the, the field and grabs these papers up and saves as many of them as she can in her blouse. What we don't tell in the church is that she's the 12-year-old that Joseph goes to in 1831 and says, you're to be my plural wife someday, and someday she is. She justifies that she might have had a child by Joseph and states that others of the wives could have had children as well. This is typically assumed to imply sex enough that her descendants have been tested for paternity. Again, this one's more vague, but we do know from multiple witnesses, including herself, that Joseph taught her plural marriage and that she was a plural wife of Joseph Smith. Number 12, Zena Jacobs, believed to be Joseph's child. Now, this was debunked, but again, they do the test. This is Zena uh, Huntington Jacobs Smith Young. And so she marries uh, Henry Jacobs. Sad, sad story. If you want to know a really sad story in Mormonism, go read this one. Um, really just a, just a heart-wrenching, heartbreaking episode in our, in our faith. And she, after she has this wonderful husband who she speaks highly of and he speaks highly of her, and yet Joseph comes in and marries her, and she lives with Joseph, and then Joseph dies, and then she, and then she marries Brigham Young, and, and they're in their house together, and it, it just is such a heart-wrenching episode. 
Number 13, Clarissa Reed Hancock's son, Mosiah Hancock, was believed to be Joseph's child. Again, debunked by the DNA. I believe this is all the work that uh, uh, Ugo Prego is uh, is working on. Um, Presenta, Presendia Huntington Buell, again, her son Oliver was believed to be Joseph's son. Again, debunked by DNA. Number 15, Fanny Alger. This relationship is pretty solid that there's a relationship of some sort. Emma says she saw, and again, this is, um, I don't remember if it's William McClellan or William Law, but what one of those two is recording that they interview Emma, um, after, after Joseph Smith's death and as the reorganization of the RLDS church begins. And he quotes that Emma tells him that she saw Fanny and Joseph alone in the barn and saw the whole transaction. You also get, uh, later on, I gotta think about this for a moment and pull this out of my head. Let me see if I can do this. Um, uh, Mosiah Hancock. So Mosiah Hancock, I believe, is the son of Levi Hancock, and Mosiah Hancock testifies at some point that his father, Levi Hancock, was present at this, this exchange at the barn and that he's there performing a sealing. And so apologists have argued that what Emma saw in the barn was the sealing being performed and that because we don't talk about sex explicitly, it is wrong to assume that what Emma is speaking about is a sexual transaction, that the transaction is the sealing. But it should be noted again, William Law, William McClellan, I don't remember which, but that they state that Emma tells them she saw Fanny and Joseph alone in the barn. If they're alone, there's no third person, there's no ceiling. And even if there is a ceiling, it's really strange because that ceiling would have taken place in 1833 and the ceiling keys are not given to the church for two and a half more years in the Kirtland Temple when Elijah comes and gives Joseph Smith power to bind in on earth what is bound in heaven and vice versa. Moving on, number 16, Olive Frost's child was thought to be Joseph's. Number 17, Hannah Ells is cited as Joseph going into her house for sexual relations. Number 18, Maria Lawrence. Um, Andrew Jensen was an early church historian, not to be confused with Marlon Jensen. Andrew Jensen uh, says this in the in his historical record, this is, I believe, volume 6, page 230. He says, quote, I am also able to testify that Emma Smith, the prophet's first wife, gave her consent to the marriage of at least four other girls, Emily and Eliza Partridge, Maria and Sarah Lawrence, to her husband, and that she was well aware that he associated with them as wives within the meaning of all that word implies, unquote. This is faithful LDS church historian Andrew Jensen who who worked as if this was his calling in the church. There's no writing this guy off in any way. Number 19, Sarah Lawrence. Quote, I do know that as his, I'm sorry, I do know that at his mansion home was living Maria and Sarah Lawrence and one of Cornelius P. Lott's daughters as his plural wives, with the full knowledge of his wife, Emma, of their married relations to him, unquote. 
This is in More Testimony, a letter dated March 9th, 1904, that appeared in the Deseret Evening News, April 12th, 1904. And this article I'm going off of, it has an interesting side note. Joseph Smith advised William Clayton to, quote, just keep her at home and brook it, and if they raise trouble about it and bring you before me, I will give you an awful scourging and probably cut you off from the church, and then I will rebaptize you and set you ahead as good as ever, unquote. William Clayton Journal, October 19th, 1843. So you can see Clayton... Writing in his journal. Again, let's, let's be really careful here. It's easy to write off people who are critics of the church. I would be really hesitant when people write things in their journal to simply write it off as just a critic running his mouth and spreading anti-Mormon lies. And you can see here, if the quote is true, that Joseph Smith has these mechanisms in place to look like he's punishing somebody while still just rebaptizing them a short time later. So when you take all this data in, you get this conversation, this idea that uh, to be on the safe side, it, it would seem that Joseph Smith had sexual relationships as like an absolute. The number would be around 13 women, right? When you, when you start to say, okay, where else can I go with this data? That there's people saying like so-and-so was the son or daughter of Joseph. And even though the DNA testing says, no, he's not or she's not, you still have to kind of grant that that rumor leaves room. If we take those rumors and hold them as true, the number goes up to 19. And and I just want to conclude here saying, like, I put this question on Facebook a few days ago. If we were to do a survey of the members of the church, and we asked two questions, if we said, was Joseph Smith a polygamist? Did Joseph Smith have more wives than Emma? Yes or no? I think most members of the church, and I don't have any data for this, but I think most members of the church believe Joseph Smith was a monogamous, and polygamy doesn't start until Brigham Young. I also think our reasons for why polygamy happened are really problematic. We give reasons like, oh, there were so many more widows because the men were killed off because of persecution, and these women needed support on the trail west. We use DNC 132 that it's to multiply and replenish the earth and to bring seed to the earth. And yet we have to come to grips that the very way in which Joseph Smith practiced polygamy seems to violate the very rules of 132. And, and even Brian Hales acknowledges that the, one of the purposes of polygamy is to bring forth seed. And yet it seems at least in Joseph Smith's case that doesn't happen. And you get this Temple Lot case where you have these women testifying of them being Joseph Smith's wife in every way. And one of them even saying carnal intercourse. And you also have to come to grips with the fact that Brigham Young and those after practice polygamy, it seems, in a very different way than the way the apologists want to defend Joseph Smith. In other words, when the apologists jump in and say, don't make those claims, Here's the facts around Joseph Smith. Here's what may be going on. And it's not fair to say he practiced polygamy in the ways of XYZ. Except that as soon as you get past Joseph Smith, you have Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and, and John Taylor and, uh, and other leaders of the church practicing polygamy exactly in the XYZ mode. 
And so if you're going to like say, look, Joseph didn't do that, you're also going to have to explain how Brigham Young did do that. And so I think polygamy gets really messy, and thank goodness for this Temple Lot case, because it holds the church to having stated that Joseph Smith not only practiced polygamy, but that his form of plural marriage involved sex with these women. It should also be noted that Emma Smith is like the 23rd or 26th woman sealed to him. That while being his first wife, and us talking about how much he treasured her, it should be understood that he was sealed eternally to almost two dozen or more women before he sealed to his dear wife, Emma. We should cut Emma some slack. We should be way more understanding of her situation, and we should be much more willing to dive into this data and, and say, like, look, we made some serious mistakes here. Let's talk about the practice of polygamy, and let's begin to sort this out. I hope this episode's been interesting. I hope that you've enjoyed learning about the Temple Lot case. And, and it's my hope that, again, I hope you see this theme showing up over and over again right now. But it's my hope that we can be vulnerable and begin having conversations about our history to the extent that we just don't talk about leg surgeries, that we don't just talk about Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner sticking Book of Commandment pages in her blouse, that we don't attribute Thomas Marsh leaving over milk and strippings and Simon's Rider leaving because his name spelled wrong, that we stop telling the simple faith-promoting stories that cause our dominant narrative to not be true, and instead open ourselves up to a much more thorough and deep dive into the real reality of Mormon history and recognize how messy this gets and recognize what that messiness tells us we have to do going forward. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shoes never